Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Praise be to God. What a powerful time in worship. Uh, It's been a while since I've been in live worship like that, and I'm so honored to be here this afternoon uh, at the invitation of Pastor Rasul and Pastor James and Josh and Bridge Church. I just see you as family. I know that I'm in the Bronx, the the boogie down, and you guys are in Brooklyn, and according to the street law, we ain't supposed to interact, but I think that God has brought us together, the South Bronx and Brooklyn, right there in your house, say amen, and and give God glory for uncommon partnerships and uncommon unity the way God does it. So I am just so honored to be here, so honored to have partaken in so many, um, I think, relevant prophetic moves. Bridge Church is a church of movement. This is a place from the very first time I was invited to speak here, this is a place that I knew uh, smelled like fresh bread. God was doing something fresh and new and he was going to feed the streets. I even remember saying the worship was so powerful and prophetic the first time, just as prophetic as it was today, that I said somebody needs to open the doors and get the sound outside. This is not a church that should be behind the four walls. You are a missional community. And if you're gonna stay on mission, you're gonna have to move, especially out of this space. I thank God that we're live today. I thank God that we're in your living room, in your dining room, wherever we are today, meeting you. But I believe that God would call you into a space to trust him deeper, walk with him more intimately, and then find rest in his presence. Uh, I'm here today to uh, continue the series, proclamation series out of the Gospel of John. And I know there's a long long line of gifted preachers, theologians, and practitioners that are coming. Some of them I know, some of them I don't know, and all of them I look up to. But tonight, my assignment is to share with you one truth. And it's, it's my hopes, after we finish reflecting on the text in John 11, 17 through 44, that you all along with me will buy into the fact that we need to file for chapter 11. File for chapter 11. I'm telling you today that I'm filing bankruptcy in chapter 11 because when I look at John chapter 11, I am altogether taken back at how just like that last worship song, my God, he never fails, he never, never fails, it almost looks as if Jesus is gonna fail Mary, Martha, and Lazarus when we start off in verse 17 in the ESV, the Bible says this, And now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, period. Now, if we were in a different type of setting, I would say that's the only text that we need to dive into because there's so much historical and cultural nuance behind that first sentence. This is the reason why exegesis and expositional research is so important in the church today. We need 
prophets that understand the word of God. Come on, somebody, say amen. We need people to stop spreading, uh, uh, ex stop facilitating exegetical malpractice and taking text out of context and spreading ignorance in the church of God. But that verse 17, if you have to look deeper, you've got to exegete it deeper, culturally, historically, uh, to understand the depth of that statement. Let me read it again for you. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is the beginning and this is the end of this thesis, of this idea. And the idea is, is that Jesus is always on time. Jesus is always on time. In your clock, he might be late. On your watch, he might be four days, 40 hours, 40 weeks, 40, 40 years late. But Jesus is always on time. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. There's significance to that, comma, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, I'm not judging Mary, but I'm saying if, if, the, if the solution of all solutions is on its way to me, I'm not going to wait for it to get to me, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to move toward the solution. Here is the king of kings, and we know that in the text, they don't really know who he is. They have an idea of who he is. But what I'd love to see here is that Martha heard that Jesus was coming and she met him. Church, the first of you taking notes, the first point, please meet Jesus in your dead situations. Please meet Jesus in your dead situations. You do not have to wait for him to come to you. You've got a mouth and you've got hands and you can create an altar right in your space and you can meet Jesus in whatever pain, a structural crisis you're dealing with. Please get up and meet Jesus in your dead situation. I love what D.A. Carson, he implies and he, he, he opens up and in the slide you see on your screen, I'm, I'm quoting his observation on verse 17. He says this, that from a slightly later date, there are resources attesting to rabbinic belief that the soul hovers over the body of the deceased person for the first three days, intending to re-enter it. But as soon as it, it sees its appearance change in the process of decomposition, he has let it go and he departs. This is D.A. Carson reflecting Talmud and Leviticus Rabbah, the rabbinical commentary, discussing that the people in the backdrop understood that a prophet that was a prophet according to this Rabbah could resurrect somebody on the third day. This is why that first sentence in 17 is so very important. Because according to the belief in Levitical law, they believed that the soul of a person was hovering for three days. So a prophet that was sent of God within three days could do the miracle. You see, but the point that Jesus wanted to prove was not that he was a prophet. The point that Jesus wanted to prove was not that he was a sage or a great teacher or a nice guy or an evangelist just dropping into a city. He had a bigger point to prove, not just to Lazarus, the deceased, not just to Mary and Martha, the weeping and the lamenting family members, but to the very people that were around him. Understand this, that not only you are a witness to the dead patches in your life, that there are people that are doing life around you. And if you're a leader, and if you're a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a leader. No, you don't need the title, but you're a leader. And because of that, 
People are watching you. People are seeing how you're living. People are watching the decisions that you're making. So when you make decisions, make sure Jesus is considered because people will read you before they read the Bible that you're citing and and giving texts about. Verse 21 says this, moving along. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, have you had been here? My brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I don't know if you've ever been like Sister Martha. God comes to you and you're in the presence of the Lord and you're citing your theology degree at Jesus. You're citing your, 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 your script at Jesus. Lord, I, I know that you're gonna handle this, and, uh, but you could have handled it differently. And, and you, all the way, you don't see the full picture, but you start to remind God of what you do know. Martha reminds God. She's not in the, in, the, in the view to see everything that's about to happen, but as she engages with the master, what she unpacks is her theology. Tell your neighbor, wherever you're at, you know you have a theology, right? Tell your neighbor, you have a theology, to the left and the right. Tell, tell your mother, tell your father, tell your spouse, tell your kids. You know, even your children have a theology. You, no, they can't articulate it from a, 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 a theological construct perspective or from an academic perspective. But the decisions they make are based on how they see God, on how they see God move and process. Their belief system, their worldview is evident. Everyone's theology is evident in the very actions and decisions that they make even when it seems as if the, the, um, the, um, the person who has no faith whatsoever, the secularist, the atheist, when facing mortality, it's been known that the atheists have proclaimed, oh God, no. Everybody has a theology. We see Martha's. We even see her eschatology. I know that he'll be raised on the final day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, somebody say that with me, though he die, though he right? Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live, the Bible says, yeah. and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Yeah. This is where a praise break should be breaking out in your living room right now, because we are right in the middle of history as the COVID global pandemic is rocking the world, separating the church, crashing the economy, messing up and dividing the government. The entire world right now needs to have some faith in the resurrection that's only found in the Yeshua, the Messiah, the Christ that's in the text right here. We need resurrection. We need to see and remember that we are people of resurrection. Our entire system of faith in Judeo-Christianity is built on resurrection. I don't care how young you are, for the rest of your life, you will be an apologist to the resurrection. You will defend it, you will understand it, you will study it, because outside of that, what is it that you believe? What are the tenets of your faith, now listen to me, I'm not talking systematic theology. Systematic theology is the framework in which we put the entire system to articulate it, to teach it, have a pedagogical frame to then see a continuance of a belief system. But resurrection and belief therein is to go from a, from a normal understanding into what? A supernatural understanding. You need faith 
not a degree to understand resurrection. No seminary can put that in you. No class professor. The only only one that can put that in you is the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. And your heart has got to be open to receive him in order to to truly walk in that faith. Because we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this bridge church? Do you believe in Jesus and in the resurrection power and that he is life eternal, life everlasting, life, life because he alone is God. I love what uh, E.A. Bloom, theologian says, and he gives his comments in his uh, theological work on the Gospel of John. And he says that we have a tool that is often not used in the church, in particularly within our ecclesiology, as we develop and we plant churches. Bloom says we gotta come back to that statement, right? And it says that the resurrection of the life in the new age is present right now, this is what Bloom says, because Jesus is the Lord of life. Jesus' words about life and death are seemingly paradoxical. Because death starts, and we all fear death, or you, some fear death. We all, nobody wants to die right now. Come on, somebody say amen. You got plans, you got appointments, you got a haircut you got to get. You got nails you got to get done. You got bills you got to pay. Taxes you got to give to the IRS, right? And so what happens? Nobody wants to die right now. But the Bible teaches us that we don't look at death as an ending, but a beginning. We step into eternity. We step into the presence of the maker. We step into the, for the presence of the great, I am the lover of our soul. How dare we not take this faith and apply it to regular life? How dare we not take this faith and apply it to our political situation and systemic oppression realized in New York City and across the globe? How dare we not take this faith and apply it in our homes, amongst our families? What is it that God cannot do? Now, I'm not talking about prosperity, blab it and gram it, name it and claim it. I'm talking about believing in the God that brings dead things back to life. I I could talk about that all day because according to statistics, I shouldn't even be here. I should not be introduced as Reverend Dr. Professor so-and-so. I should not be introduced as a founder of anything because just the context and the social reality of where the Lord pulled me out of, the muck and the mire he delivered me from. I should not be here today in my right mind. But because I believe in Jesus and the power of his resurrection in my dead situation, I'm seeing and experience new things, new life. And I'm a part of something greater than I could have ever imagined in my 50 years on this earth. My mother did seven years in Bedford Penitentiary for women. And she thought she was going to die in that prison but a chaplain from prison fellowship met her and she found new life in a dead prison. My father did 22 years in prison and he thought he was gonna die in Clinton, in Attica, in Elmira, in Sing Sing, in Greenhaven. But there was a chaplain from prison fellowship that met him in his dead prison and he found new life, new beginning, new purpose, a remix, a remix in the trajectory of his destiny. And the very things that he had destroyed because of his addiction were even touched 
You see, because when, when God comes into your life, there's a rollover, there's an there's a overflow into everybody that's attached to you. You ain't got to say amen. Because uh, I know my background. I know where I come from. And I know that I'm standing here because my mama prayed for me. I know I'm standing here because my father survived Sing Sing riots and he prayed for me. And he prayed against the generational curses that plagued his family that they would not plague his son. And to this day, to this day, I see resurrection power every time I walk into a prison. To this day, I see the hand of God when I see dead lives in the South Bronx and I see God touch people and heal people and get people off the corner. When I see the illiterate find education and the incarcerated find freedom and the impoverished find stability, solvency, and a living wage. You ain't gotta say amen. But the Jesus that's in this text is not just a soteriological icon. He's not just my soul savior. He's the savior to my systems. He's the savior to everything that's broken and wrong in the world. He is the one that brings dead things to life. Just in case you didn't know this, our government is dead and it needs Jesus. Bloom says this, that a believer's death issues in new life. A believer's death issues in new life. The text says, blessed. Blessed from a place of celebration. The death of the saints. Blessed is the death of the saints. Why? Because we've run the race. We fulfill the assignment. And we go before the maker who gave us the assignment. In fact, Bloom says this, the life of a believer is of such a quality that he or she will never die spiritually. He has eternal, and the end of physical life is only asleep for his body until the resurrection into life. I'm dropping a jewel on you right now, son. And the jewel is, it don't stop because my flesh dies. I'm letting you know how bad your situation, God is a God of resurrection. As we go into the rest of the text, verse 28, we get to that famous text. We get to that famous moment when Jesus, I'm sorry, verse 28, when she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when, G, when the Jews, verse 31, and when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This tells me that the Christ that I serve sees my pain. Sees my pain. He sits at the right hand of the Father seeing your pain. The Bible says interceding day and night on your behalf. The Holy Spirit intercedes in moaning and groaning that cannot be understood because sometimes life hurts so bad you can't even talk and articulate it. He's the God that can give you articulation for your pain so that your pain does not turn into your prison. God is altogether beautiful, 
wondrous and capable of handling every dead situation that we have. Why am I talking so much about life and death? Because COVID has killed many people. My congregation saw 15 losses, 15 people, 15 funerals, some virtual, some in parking lots because the, 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 the funeral parlor was overrun, 15 families shocked and rocked, 15 uh, spouses, children, grandchildren, nieces, uncles. No seminary could prepare me for what I was facing. And when I look back over the last three and a half months, I can take no credit for any education that I've been exposed to. There was no gimmick and no construct. There was nothing I could pull out of my pocket or out of a book that prepared me for this situation that we faced. I sat in a podcast this past week. I just told Pastor Rasul that a pastor sat down an international podcast and, and he says, you know, Pastor Mike, we have you here because we saw the article in the May 5th about the losses in your church and I just want to say this as a person from Australia. It almost looks as if COVID is racist. It almost looks as if it's racist. When you look at the statistics and the pockets across the country, there's so many families that are dying from it, but they're all people of color. And I said, no, it's not that the disease is racist or that it has a lean toward a darker hue, but because we live in a world that has broken systems and those systems have been tainted by white supremacy. Now there goes in the racism that created the margin space and in that margin space created a perfect context for a plague to thrive. Did anybody hear what I just said? Even within margin space, he is the God of resurrection. Because the only hope that I could offer the families and the loss of loved ones to the people that we serve in the Bronx was that this is not goodbye. This is I'll see you later. Because, because he lives, we live. Try telling that to a mother who lost an 11-year-old boy. Try telling that to a mother who lost a 20-year-old daughter. Try telling that to a father who just lost his wife and both his parents have it and his children. Try telling that to somebody who took their mother to the hospital and two days later now she's gone forever and they could not say goodbye. It takes more than a confirmation class or the Eucharisto class that we give. Our spiritual formation falls short when it comes to dealing with the issues that we're dealing today. We need Jesus. He is a God of resurrection. He is a God that heals. He is a God that restores. And he is a God that's always on time. Well, you know, Mary and Martha might disagree with you. And when you look at the dynamics, I love the dynamics and the differences in Mary and Martha. And I'm not beating up Mary or Martha. I'm just saying it's interesting how some people choose to move toward Jesus and others wait for Jesus in their situations. Did you hear what I just said, church? Some of us, when we deal with crisis, move toward Jesus. And some of us wait for Jesus to come meet us in the situation. And I want to tell you something. We cannot have this, this lethargic formation continuing in our church, in our ecclesiology, in our missiology. No, it's not about works. It's not about uh, merit. It's not about uh, uh, um, actions. There's nothing you could ever do, right, to save yourself. But faith is movement. Faith is action. 
and you can lift up your hands and you can open your mouth and you can speak blessing upon the very ones that are cursing you. And you may die anyway, but you will have released the supernatural into that dead situation. Maybe even your death that would cause about their transformation. There's a paradox. The kingdom leads us down a road to face hardships. And whether those hardships overcome us or not, we understand that who is in control? God is in control. Jesus weeps because he sees the suffering of his people. Jesus weeps. And while Jesus is dealing with this, Jesus also comes very close. D.A. Carson does a a great job at, at articulating that in his commentary on the Gospel of John. He says, Jesus facilitates the resurrection of Lazarus with his impeding crucifixion coming. He knows this because he's God. He's facing what he himself has got to face in just a few chapters. Being prepared. He is getting, he's getting with the strength that he needs before he steps into the crucifixion by knowing that God always hears his prayers. Lord, if you had been here. I remember saying that as a young child, crying for my mother and father in my grandmother's house. Jesus, where are you? I remember seeing that, saying that as I walked through the halls of Rikers Island as a senior clinical director supervising CSWs as they uh, provided plans uh, for release of of people coming from Rikers Island, integrating back into society. And I would see the masses of African-American men, many who were there because they did not know who they were and did not have access to the truth that Jesus loved them. Many of them, because they didn't know who they were, followed somebody else into the criminal direction that brought them into this place. And many were just profiled because we have a racist judicial system. In either case, in God's providential plan, I was able to pray for all of those I interacted with, believing and trusting that the next step for them would not be another stent in prison. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. You know, you're gonna be put in that same situation to profess Jesus so that the people around you will know that he's real as he does miracles in your life, not just for you, but for them. And we had said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I wonder what needs to be called out in your life. I wonder what dead situations I wonder what big boulders have been blocking you from seeing the light of God's hand. 
You know that if Jesus didn't call out Lazarus by name and just said, come out, that every dead person in that cemetery would have popped out the ground? That's why you got to name some things. You got to put the name on it. Name it and call it out. Because some people are calling things out that they don't want. And they're not ready for. Y'all didn't hear what I said. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. I love this famous text in John. And I love the Johannine frame and how he tells the story. I love D.A. Carson's view through Leviticus Rabbah. I love the way E.A. Bloom unpacks the fact that we've got to go back to our anthropology, go back to our view and belief and life after death and understanding that we are apologists for the resurrection. Well, the, 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 the best defense is the crucifixion. But ultimately, this is what we're studying until we get into eternity. Everybody in this text, that's the main character, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are bankrupt. They're bankrupt. This is chapter 11. And I'm filing for bankruptcy today because I want to see a fourth day miracle and resurrection in my life, in my church, in my family. This is the word of the Lord. If you can receive it, say amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.